Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter, but exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Garrett Hake, reporting in Washington, where the House of Representatives remains without a speaker. After House Republicans this afternoon once again tried and failed to rally behind their nominee. Right now, Republicans are trying to figure out what comes next after House Judiciary Chair and former President Trump's pick for Speaker Jim Jordan fell well short of the 217 votes needed to secure the gavel. Jordan's team says they plan to try again later today. We will bring you the very latest in a moment. But we begin right now with breaking news tied to the escalating war between Israel and Hamas. Here in Washington, President Biden is expected to depart this afternoon for Israel and for Jordan for high-stakes wartime visit to the Middle East, coming as Israel prepares for a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. This all comes amid an apparently an apparent deadly strike on a hospital, and we want to warn you, some of the footage you're about to see is disturbing. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, hundreds have been killed in a hospital bombing in North Gaza. This is new video that appears to show paramedics rushing to the scene of the hospital that was struck. Palestinian authorities have blamed Israel. The Israeli military says they did not carry out the strike and that their intelligence points to Islamic militants inside Gaza. NBC has not confirmed the details of the bombing or the death toll. There is more from the scene showing paramedics tending to the wounded outside the hospital. Meanwhile, the injured appear to have been rushed to nearby hospitals. This is the scene as ambulances arrive outside another nearby hospital in Gaza City. And the bodies of those killed in the bombing also appear to have been brought to nearby hospitals. Now, this comes as many hospitals in Gaza are facing shortages of supplies and of electricity. Amid the uncertainty of exactly what happened, the bombing comes at a sensitive moment for the White House as the president heads to Tel Aviv and as Hamas has twice in the past two days suggested they would be willing to release non-Israeli hostages. The White House is cautioning that Hamas's claims should be viewed skeptically. Still, a major focus of the president's trip will be on those estimated 200 hostages, a few of them believed to be Americans, currently being held inside Gaza. Also high on President Biden's agenda during the visit, working with Israel on a plan to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, which Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced last night after a marathon nine-hour meeting with Israeli officials. The United States and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid from donor nations and multilateral organizations to reach civilians in Gaza, and them alone, including the possibility of creating areas to help keep civilians out of harm's way. It is critical that aid begin flowing into Gaza as soon as possible. The exact details of any humanitarian plan remain unclear as the situation inside Gaza grows more dire. The only way out of Gaza to the south at the Rafah crossing remains closed, despite hope earlier this week that it would be open to allow civilians to get out and humanitarian aid to get in. Joining me now from Israel is NBC News correspondent Raf Sanchez. NBC News Ford correspondent Josh Letterman is in Tel Aviv. 
And with the latest on the president's trip is Aaron Gilchrist, who joins us from the White House. So, Raf, I'll start with you. Talk me through this news we're getting of this hospital struck in Gaza. What do we know so far? And is it sort of a back and forth of what Palestinian and Israeli officials are, are saying? Yeah, Garrett. So the Palestinian Authority is saying that minimum hundreds of people have been killed in what they say was an Israeli airstrike on the Al-Akhli Hospital in Gaza City. This is in the northern half of Gaza. This is in the area where Israel has been warning people to get out. The fatalities seem to have been concentrated in a courtyard in the front of the hospital. This seems like it was families who believed fatally, as it turned out, that a hospital might be a safe place for them and that if they went to the area around the hospital facility, that they might be spared the fighting raging around them. As you said, the images coming out of Gaza, coming from this hospital, are absolutely horrific. The death toll appears to be at minimum in the hundreds, but new figures are being suggested all the time. We have just heard from the Israeli military. They are saying that at the time this hospital was hit, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a smaller terrorist group which operates inside Gaza, was in the middle of firing a barrage of rockets into Israel. And the Israeli military says, intelligence from multiple sources we have in our hands indicates that Islamic Jihad is responsible for the failed rocket launch which hit the hospital. So, Garrett, we should say a couple of things really quickly. This is a fog of war situation. We are not able to get inside Gaza. The Israeli borders are sealed. The Egyptian borders are sealed. Our teams cannot get there. We cannot see with our own eyes what is happening. But we should say the Israeli military at this point is not providing any evidence to back up its claims. It is citing intelligence that it has. We should say the death toll here appears to be far, far larger than what we associate with Palestinian rocket fire. The rockets fired from Gaza are deadly. They are dangerous, but they do not typically kill 500 people in a way that heavy, heavy explosives dropped by Israeli aircraft, potentially to destroy tunnels underneath Gaza City, have the potential to kill hundred people, hundreds of people. And Garrett, we should just say finally that the Israeli military does have a track record sometimes in these chaotic situations of saying things at first, which end up not being true in the end. And one example is the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, that Palestinian journalist with Al Jazeera. The Israeli military initially blamed that on Palestinian gunmen, and only much, much later on did they accept that it was most likely an Israeli who fired the fatal bullet there. So a chaotic situation inside Gaza. The reverberations are being felt all across the region. There are major protests going on in the occupied West Bank right now, in cities like Ramallah, in cities like Hebron. There are protesters gathering at Israeli embassies all around the region. And as I'm sure you'll talk about, this has the potential to seriously derail President Biden's trip to the Middle East. No, you're absolutely right, Raf. It's all connected, and the fog of war element makes it so difficult to parse what's going on. I appreciate your reporting on this, and please uh, stay safe. I want to turn now to Josh. Um, Josh, we talked a lot on this broadcast yesterday about this offer from Hamas to potentially release some hostages. Seems to be more information on that topic tonight. What can you tell us on the latest on that process? 
Well, Garrett, a senior Hamas official has tell, told our colleague uh, Richard Engel that Hamas is willing to release civilian hostages within one hour if Israel uh, would simply halt those airstrikes. That official uh, telling Richard uh, that they have no problem releasing civilians, uh, but that it's simply logistically impossible while there are ongoing uh, Israeli airstrikes. And prior to that, we had heard from a Hamas official uh, that they had every intention to release uh, the foreign nationals who are part of that group of hostages, saying essentially uh, that they had been taken accidentally in the fog of that battle, uh, that terror attack a little over a week ago, and ended up in the Gaza Strip, and that Hamas was simply waiting for the conditions to be right on in the field for them to release uh, those hostages. Now, obviously, we have not seen any hostages released right now. Israel has not offered any uh, unilateral ceasefire uh, to get hostages out or for any other reason. But we did, of course, see that video uh, that Hamas released of one of those hostages, a French-Israeli uh, national, seeming to show how Hamas is trying to signal uh, to the rest of the world right now, not only that some of those hostages are still alive and that are being treated well, but also that there could be some prospect for eventually getting them out of the Gaza Strip. And uh, Josh, talk about the degree to which this is going to be a White House priority and the kind of multinational, delicate discussions around the possibility of getting hostages released. I mean, you're a diplomatic yeah. correspondent. Just exactly how complex is this process now and likely to become? Well, it's a huge priority for the Biden administration, not only because these are civilians, but also because we know that there are Americans among that group, probably a little over a dozen based on the estimates that the U.S. has. Uh, and so this has been a real uh, rush of diplomacy involving not only the U.S., but a lot of other regional allies. Because remember, Garrett, it's not like the U.S. has a relationship with Hamas and can go right. and sit down with them and broker a deal. And so the U.S. has been trying to work with all of those other countries that do have relations with Hamas, uh, like Qatar and like Egypt uh, and like the other Arab nations in the Persian Gulf uh, to try to see if they can be intermediaries with Hamas. But so far, it's unclear how much ground has really been moved forward in those uh, discussions other than these somewhat cryptic statements that have emerged from Hamas over the last 48 hours or so. All right, Josh Letterman, thank you for that reporting. Let's turn now to Aaron Gilchrist outside the White House. And Aaron, obviously, this bombing serves as a good reminder about the scope of the violence that we're talking about here and the changing conditions on the ground, how that might relate to the changing plans at the White House and how they're approaching this trip. What do we know about kind of the stakes of this trip and, and where are we even in the process? What's going on at the White House right now? Yeah, this was already, we know, a, a fragile situation that we're dealing with in the Middle East now. And now with the reporting around this hospital in Gaza having been struck, it does make it an even more fragile situation. As we know, the president's intention is to leave Washington this afternoon, to travel to Tel Aviv, and to sit down with the, with the prime minister there, one, to show solidarity with the Israeli people, to support uh, what they're doing uh, after the strike on October 7th uh, uh, of Hamas in Israel, and also to start to talk to the Israeli prime minister face to face about the, the plan of attack there for the Israelis and what their strategy is going forward. That was the plan uh, going into today. And once the president leaves here, it'll be it'll be we're yet yet to, it'll be yet to tell whether that will continue to be exactly what the plan is going to be for the president in Israel. Obviously, Secretary of State Blinken has been traveling around the Middle East for the last week or so, trying to shore up support for uh, humanitarian aid to go in to Gaza, trying to 
talked to allies in that region about trying to tamp down the potential for this conflict to spread outside of the area that it's already in. And so the president in this trip is going to continue that effort to, to actually have those face-to-face -face meetings. As you noted with Raf, we don't know whether the president will, will still meet with the Palestinian leader, Abbas, but the meeting with the leaders of Jordan and Egypt still on the table as an effort to make sure that the humanitarian uh, aid can rush into Gaza as soon as is possible. And we should expect to hear from the president tomorrow about uh, his efforts to, to make sure that happens. All right, Aaron Gilchrist, thank you for that reporting. And of course, Ralph Sanchez and Josh Letterman in the region. Coming up, it's been a busy day on Capitol Hill after Congressman Jim Jordan failed to notch enough support to win the gavel and become House Speaker. The latest on where we stand and when we might expect another vote. That's next. You're watching Meet the Press Now. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Welcome back. As we mentioned, amid this global turmoil, there's still no Speaker of the House. And at the moment, there appears to be no particular path to electing one. Once again, House Republicans failed to line up behind their party's nominee, in this case, Congressman Jim Jordan, the House Judiciary Committee chairman, only got 200 votes on the first ballot, well short of the 217 he needs. All told, 20 Republicans voted against Jordan, which is more than many of Jordan's allies had been expecting. Many of those who voted against Jordan represent swing districts, and some of them have expressed displeasure on how Jordan's team has handled this entire process. Speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry sent the House to recess after the first vote, and House Republicans let us know how they feel. In January, when we voted against Speaker McCarthy, while we were voting against the majority of our party, we were voting with the grassroots Republican voters. We were voting with our constituents. We were voting with the base of our party that didn't want us to vote for McCarthy. Total opposite this time. And I'm supporting Kevin McCarthy. I think Kevin McCarthy was the, the, the choice of the conference. 96% of us voted to maintain him yeah. as Speaker. So, you know, for me, I don't know why we're settling. We should go back to what we had. Jim Jordan's office says to expect another vote on the floor today, but a fellow Republican lawmaker tells our Hill team that a handful of Jordan supporters may not be Jordan supporters for long and may not support him on a second ballot. So it's uncertain where we would land on a second vote. Now, remember, the golden rule of the House applies here. If they had the votes, they'd be holding a vote. Now, as House Republicans head once again into the unknown, it's worth noting that the House has been without an elected speaker for more than two weeks now. And without an elected speaker, Congress is powerless to do anything for Israel, for Ukraine, for the voters who sent them there. Joining me now with the latest from Capitol Hill is NBC Sahil Kapoor. And Sahil, what happened on this first vote? I think we expected Jordan not to make it, but there were unexpected pockets of opposition to him. What are we learning about where all those no votes on Jim Jordan came from? 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Garrett. We did not expect Congressman Jordan to make it and win the speakership on the first ballot, but the number of defections surprised even his team. They were expecting something close to high single digits or maybe about 10, under a dozen certainly, which is where they thought they were yesterday. It ended up being 20 defections, and of those 20s, uh, many of them, as you pointed out, are swing district Republicans who hail from districts that President Biden carried in the year 2020. A number of them are appropriators as well. One of the most powerful committees uh, in in mm -hmm. Congress, you know, especially now in divided government, they're one of the few committees that has real power to legislate. A number of appropriators, including Kay Granger, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, not known as a party bucker, uh, voted against Jordan. So the, the, it's kind of an eclectic mix here. A lot of New Yorkers as well, uh, some of them complaining about things like the state and local tax deduction. It really ended up being a, a, a wide cross-section of the conference that voted against Jordan. And this leaves him at an inflection point right now. We know from his team that they will hold at least one more uh, vote on a, on a second ballot for speaker. The crucial thing for Jordan here is to show he's making progress, to show he's gaining votes and not losing votes, as some Republicans, including Ken Buck, who voted against Jordan, uh, predicted he would do uh, with our colleague Katie Turr just a little bit ago. A crucial moment uh, for Jim Jordan to show that he still has a path here to becoming speaker, or could this whole thing collapse? So, Sahil, if not Jim Jordan, who? I mean, what's the prevailing thought on this? You had Kevin McCarthy with a handful of votes, Steve Scalise with a handful of votes, former Congressman Lee Zeldin with a handful of votes, and then there's Patrick McHenry with a bow tie and a gavel sitting up there in the chair. I mean, if, if it's not going to be Jim Jordan, who? Yeah, Garrett, I'll boldly predict that Lee Zeldin will not become the next Speaker <laughs> of the right, House. We heard it beyond first. that, it is so difficult... It is so difficult to see how this plays out. Um, I can I can see three potential paths here. The first is Jim Jordan somehow shows he's making progress. He might not win it on the second ballot, but if he gets closer, you can see a number of the defections. People like Mike Kelly, Steve Womack are generally party guys known as team players. Uh, if he shows he's making progress, they might find their way to supporting him, particularly because you know their their votes in this in this first ballot was a way to show solidarity with Steve Scalise on the on the basis of believing he was mistreated. The second option, which Congressman Buck, again, floated on our air, is to temporarily empower the speaker, uh, the acting speaker, Patrick McHenry, for something like 30 days. This is something that uh, several Democrats have suggested as well. Patrick McHenry is generally seen as a, as a straight shooter, as someone uh, Democrats believe they can deal with, especially on a short-term basis to prevent a government shutdown, maybe authorize some action on Israel. And then this, you know, what I would call the nuclear option, which some Republicans are already suggesting, is put Kevin McCarthy back up there. He had 96% of the conference. He had more support than Jim Jordan had today and more support than Steve Scalise appeared to have when he withdrew. Put him back up there, do one, two, three, maybe 15 more ballots and try to wear the conference down to elect him. No, that is not a serious option that's being, uh, you know, let's say actively considered by McCarthy himself, who is behind Jordan. But this is, again, a moment of deep peril for Jim Jordan, for the House of Representatives and for every American who is relying on Congress to act, to do something on their behalf. I appreciate the reporting, Sahel. I think of the McHenry thing as like the speaker equivalent of a CR. Just stretch out the current thing for 30 days and push it down the line. It feels like that was sort of like the teleological conclusion of where this Congress has been going. But that's a story for another time, I guess. Sahil, thanks. Joining me now to break down the numbers from this first speaker vote is our numbers guru, Steve Kornacki, who's at the big board. And Steve, as Sahil and I were just discussing, a whole lot of opposition to Jim Jordan came out of the woodwork for this uh, vote here. Where and how did he come up short? 
Yeah, a, a couple different places. And like you guys were just saying, I think the, the number there of 20 was just more than folks were expecting. And part of that was just the expectation setting on the part of the Jordan folks who were out there pushing yesterday the idea that he was closing in, that it might be single digits, that they could isolate the opposition after the first vote and then really crank the pressure up. And instead, you end up with 20 Republicans voting no. And it is a range here. You look at the top of this list here of the Republicans who voted against Jim Jordan, there's Don Bacon from Nebraska. Don Bacon, that's a blue district Republican. This is the congressional district in Nebraska that actually voted for Joe Biden by seven points. Biden got an electoral vote out of Nebraska. It was from this district. So just based on the politics of his district, his sort of moderate reputation, politically, that's probably a sensible vote for Don Bacon to be making. But then you've got somebody like Ken Buck you were just talking about, who was on our airwaves, mm -hmm. really seems to be dug in here uh, against Jordan, talking about the idea of other Republicans who aren't on this list right now maybe joining in. Buck is not from a blue district. Buck is not what you would typically call a moderate Republican. You see a lot of folks like that. Kay Granger, you were mentioning Mike Kelly from Pennsylvania. He's been pushing for this idea of could McHenry somehow get an expanded you know, speaker's role for a little bit. And I think what's got to be most concerning uh, for Jordan right now is that a letter has been circulating here in the last few hours. Mario Diaz-Balart from Florida sent a letter to Patrick McHenry that basically said, let's go right back to the floor and let's vote right now. And a number of other Republicans, Carlos Jimenez has joined that call. Kay Granger has now joined that call. Uh, Mike Simpson has joined that call. Steve Womack has joined that call. And a Republican who, did, who voted for Jordan on the first ballot, Marionette Miller-Meeks from Iowa. Mm -hmm. She just, in the last few minutes, joined that call. So to that idea that Buck put out on our airwaves that there could have been Jordan yes votes from the first round who flip on a second ballot, there's one from Iowa, Marionette Miller-Meeks, who's joining with a group of Republicans who seem to think Jordan's in a weak position and who seem to want to pounce right now. She's joining with them. That can't be a good and encouraging sign for him. Steve Kornacki with the highest stakes game of whack-a-mole ever played in Washington, D.C. Steve, thank you. And joining me now for some more context on what we're seeing from the House Republican Conference is a former member of the House Republican Conference, Carlos Curbelo from Florida. He's now an NBC News political analyst. So, Carlos, when you look at that list, that big board that Steve just broke down, what surprised you most about this opposition to Jim Jordan today? Well, Garrett, I think the diversity of that list is really remarkable, and it makes it tougher because if you have a problem with appropriators, you can try and go cut a deal with them. If you have a problem with swing district members, you can maybe make some accommodations. But when you have a problem with members from different factions, from all five families, as House Republicans like to mm -hmm. say, it really makes it hard because then you have to start making all sorts of promises, and those promises could hurt Jim Jordan with other members. So look, I'll tell you that those who were opposed to Jordan were surprised uh, by the um, the total today, the, the 20. Uh, last night, a lot of them were just hoping to get to double digits. They kind of had a marker. They wanted to get more than eight, which is the number of defections that uh, Kevin McCarthy ultimately had, uh, which got him deposed. Uh, they got more than double that number, and they can now make the argument that Jim Jordan is actually a weaker candidate for speaker than Kevin McCarthy. And yes, there's growing momentum 
momentum in the House Republican conference, Garrett, for this idea of leaving Patrick McHenry in place. Patrick McHenry is respected widely in the Congress. Uh, he uh, is a, uh, a leader that uh, has traditionally helped swing district members who are very worried about their prospects for reelection next year. And as some have mentioned, a lot of Democrats feel comfortable working with Patrick McHenry. Doesn't mean they like him, but they feel comfortable working with him. They feel that he can be an honest broker, that he can be trusted uh, in this uh, unique position that he's in. So if Jordan fails again and if his, his vote tally doesn't grow considerably, I think the odds of McHenry staying in place are going to start growing significantly. McHenry also has made it very clear he doesn't want the job, which may speak well of his judgment in this moment. Um, I want to ask you about the moderates in all of this, particularly those New Yorkers. I mean, it's kind of a tale as old as time that moderates are expected to fold when the spotlight is on them in this way. Did the numbers help kind of stiffen some spines? Or do you think if you're the Jordan team, it's those kind of swing district moderates that you're going to be the first people you try to pressure to change their vote? Well, I think there's a couple factors. Number one, yes, the fact that there's 20, that really helps people hold strong. The fact that it's not just them, that uh, respected Republicans like Kay Granger, Mario Diaz-Balart, I mean, these are senior appropriators. These are not Republican rebels. So the fact that there mm -hmm. are names like those, Steve Womack, uh, that gives a lot of these centrist members a lot of comfort. And then, look, Garrett, they know that Jim Jordan is one of the original architects of the chaos that the House is living right now. I served with Jim Jordan. He was always a thorn in the side of leadership. He undermined John Boehner and ultimately uh, you know, started the movement that pushed out John Boehner when uh, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. I mean, th that relationship was a bit more cordial, but mm -hmm. still it was Jordan and his faction that was consistently undermining uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, the leaders at the time. So these swing district members know uh, what Jim Jordan's DNA is. They don't share a lot of DNA because the types of policies and the approach to governing that swing district members need in order to survive is very different than the style of leadership and the approach that Jim Jordan has displayed over now a long career in the House. Well, if those swing district members are going to figure out a way to stop him, they may need to do it by 6 o'clock. We're hearing that's when the next vote might happen. Carlos Curbelo, I know you'll be watching it as closely as I will. Thank you for your analysis. And up next, evacuation confusion. Basic necessities in short supply and a collapsing health care system. Next, I'll speak to a guest inside Gaza about what he's seeing and hearing and feeling in this difficult time. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. As we noted, Palestinian officials say hundreds of people are dead following a strike on a Gaza hospital. Israel's military is denying responsibility, saying that their intelligence indicates a smaller Islamic group inside Gaza carried out the strike. This comes as, human as the humanitarian situation inside Gaza continues to spiral as civilians face the ongoing threat of strikes from the air and dwindling resources on the ground. President Biden is expected to meet with leaders in Jordan to address the humanitarian crisis as part of his visit to the region. But the Associated Press is reporting that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has pulled out of that meeting. NBC News has not yet confirmed that reporting. Health officials in Gaza, meanwhile, put out a, quote, urgent distress call for diesel earlier today, asking for anyone with gas to help keep hospitals going while they treat the sick and the injured. 
A few minutes ago, I spoke to a Gaza resident and outreach associate for Just Vision. That's an independent journalism and media organization. He's the author of this piece for the New York Times, lamenting the impact this war had had on his children and on all Palestinian children. Fadi managed to speak to us using what little electricity he has, and he gave me a raw perspective about what life is like in Gaza, including what he believes is the American willingness to look the other way as civilians die in this war. I started by asking him about what he experienced as bombs hit the Khan Yunus, the refugee camp where he lives, last night. Take a listen. In fact, the situation on the ground is very horrible. It's it's beyond our ability to afford this much of pain, especially when you are a father and you have three kids. It's very honest. It's beautiful, amazing kids suffering from at least the bombing and the sound of this bombing. I can't imagine how much other kids who are suffering from the bombing itself. Many witnesses told me that where while they are escaping and running in the streets. They were listening to voices of people who are under rebels asking for rescuing, rescuing them, but no one could help them to to save their life because the bombing was heavy over their neighborhoods. I I can't say that it's it's only in Canyon City. It's in every single meters of the Gulf Strip cities and then towns. In my neighborhood, we had at least three huge bombing entire families entire families were being killed no one survived this bombing it's horrible especially when the kids also and also we are the elder people here that entire families were being killed because it's only one 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 rocket just one rocket killed one entire, entire entire family. We don't know how to deal with it, especially that we are also under severe shortage of everything. Like I'm talking mm-hmm. about the water, the drink water, the, the food, the fuel, the internet, the connection, the, the signal, cellular phones. We cannot be connected. I'm so lucky that I have two solar panels over my building that so I can charge my battery batteries to, to be connected. Usually, I I'm disconnected before the midnight because the batteries run out before mm-hmm. getting the midnight. Now it's horrible. Yes, we 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 can't get into Gaza, so uh, we, we're counting on people like you to be our eyes and ears. Talk to me about what you're hearing in Khan Yunus, which is in in the south, from the displaced people who are arriving from the north. I mean, this, this sort of migration south in Gaza. What are you hearing from the people who are arriving where you are? Actually, I'm living in the um, uh, north south of uh, Gaza Strip in, in Hanunus City in a place called Hanunus Refugee Camp. Um, in, in my neighborhood, only we have three Anarwa shelters, and, and it, it hosted around 70,000 of um, uh, displaced people, while these three shelters can maximum have not more 1,500 of displaced people. It's horrible. There's no water. Also in these shelters, I'm talking about the taking showers and, and drinking uh, water. Is, is There's shortage in it. There's no place to, to sleep. In these shelters also, women and kids are in the classroom because just to let you know that the, this shelter is, is on our school. So women and kids are staying in the classroom and they, the the men and the elder men are staying in the yard of this school under the 
um, the hot sun and also in the north days because they're still on our center in the north and Gaza city they are it was raining today so it was draining over their heads and their their cells um i'm also from Gaza city so i'm here as as a displaced uh, family i'm a refugee uh, originally from a, a town it's called bedras we were evacuating in in Nakbi war in 1948 but and to answer your question the 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 um, the most noticed the most important noticed thing that i have been shared like it's it's the way from Gaza city and the north while they are evacuating to um the south of Gaza strip they were scared because they 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 know that the uh, israeli occupation will not um hesitate to kill them while they are evacuating some of them and actually it happened they 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 they, they targeted um, um uh, a convey of uh, uh israel, and israel disputes, so seven, yeah israel disputes that i i want to ask you about um, our President Biden is on his. Of course, Israel. I'm sorry. Of course, Israel would, would say that we are not. We didn't do that. Israel has has been killing us since 1948, and they never announced that they are the killer. But the fact on the streets and the ground, they are killing us. There is no one single day. I, 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 there is no one single day that Israel didn't kill us, a Palestinian, even in Gaza Strip or the the uh, the West Bank. I want to ask you about President Biden, who's on his way to the region right now. What would you want Americans through the American president to know about what your needs are? What influence do you think the American president would have on shaping this conflict, this crisis now in Gaza? I don't. I don't. I'm so sorry to say that I'm, I'm not expecting any good thing from the U.S. President Biden, but I would say that I'm pleasing the American people who are the paying taxes to the government by these taxes, they are supporting Israel women that it's it's killing us. I'm calling the American people who are very emotional. I have been I was in the US in March and I met for my first time and I met a lot. I, I would say tens or hundreds of American people. I, I saw by my own eyes that they are very emotional people. That's a lot of them are in solidarity with the Palestinian people. I'm asking these these people who has alive hearts to um, to go to the street to 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 to, to participate in the demonstration. We are following here in Gaza, even if we don't have electricity, but as 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 much as we can, we are following the news. Yesterday there was demonstration in DC and New York, New York Times. Thanks a lot to Jewish for Peace who organized an of course, in addition to another organization who organized this demonstration. This is the only thing that we can count and depend on. But for politician, Biden is giving the green light. He's giving the green light to the uh, Israeli coalition to kill us. He's sending a lot of weapons. We are being killed now by this by these weapons. It's, it's, by the way, just for your information, there's a strange weapon for the first time that we are being bombed by it. It hasn't allowed sound, and it has a very dark black color with a very weird um, uh, smell. I'm so scared if it's chemical or something like that, but I would say that this is the result of the unlimited support from the American administration to the Israeli genocide occupation government. All right, Fadi Abu Shamala with the perspective on the ground in Gaza. Thank you for joining us, and please stay safe. You are with them. Thank you so much.
Now, we should note that NBC News has not confirmed any reports of the use of chemical weapons by Israel, and the IDF has specifically denied using phosphorus munitions inside Gaza. I want to bring in now NBC News Chief Washington Correspondent and Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent Andrea Mitchell. And Andrea, I just want you to react to what we just heard. I mean, you've somebody who's covered conflict in this region for decades. And the frustration there that you hear and the belief that Americans are willing to sort of turn their back on this. I mean, obviously, some sort of factual questions about what Fadi has experienced there. But the anger is real and the emotion is real. And I think I'd just be curious to hear your reaction to it. You know, I've covered it for decades from both sides. The anger, the pain is so real. It's so gripping. Uh, it's horror in, to their families, to their homes, to their civil society. And the difficulty of President Biden's mission and of Secretary Blinken's shuttle trip for these last days is to try to cut through that with leaders mm-hmm. who are feeling vulnerable because they're being pressured by the anger of their citizens in both communities and try to get the region to get past the pain of what they're living through right now. And we can't speak to this man's experience. Uh, In his world, he will not believe that Israel didn't do this. Mm -hmm. And in Israel's world, they will not believe that Hamas has not done, aside from everything they did do, but that every incident going forward, that that did not come from them. And the horror of both people's experiences that you you can't speak to this man and about, well, Hamas started this war with mm-hmm. the, the most savage attack imaginable, but he's reflecting, you know, grievances that go back decades, generations of people who have lived, you know, wanting a homeland, wanting a state, moving from one place to another, being abused by the Hamas leadership, no election since right. 2006. So everyone is being victimized. And I don't know how you navigate this. Well, the, the horrible thing about this explosion today, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know who did it. You know, there, there's going to have to be a lot of forensics to even determine that if it can be. But it has certainly thrown into disarray the game plan that only hours ago we were discussing all of us with leaders on all sides. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because how much more difficult is Joe Biden's job now, given the questions about the hospital bombing? I mean, you still had the questions about this convoy explosion the other day, but the unknowable facts of this moment make the diplomacy so much more complicated. If not impossible. And first of all, they have been hoping that the West Bank would not explode. Mm -hmm. Um, Hezbollah was, of course, the biggest threat to the North. But the West Bank is right there, completely integrated and assimilated. They're, the, they're their neighbors, they're their employees, they're students, mm-hmm. they're teachers. I mean, they're all living in the right. same place, despite the walls and all the separation that has tragically occurred in, you know, in the years since Camp David and since the um, 1993 breakthroughs when you saw Arafat and Rabin on the lawn as we stood on the lawn at the White House on the South Lawn and saw the handshake. It was like a very long time ago now compared to this moment. Produced a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. So all those hopes have evaporated. And they're trying to resurrect something like that right now. And uh, if Abu Mazen, the familiar name of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, does not show up in Jordan. That is a major problem. They were hoping to get buy-in from him to keep the West Bank quiet as much as he can. Mm -hmm. He's been ineffective at doing that. The security agreements have not worked in recent years because he's had no power. And Hamas has been 
rising in its power because of its effectiveness in the view of many people at gaining something. So if he does not show up, that's one big piece missing. And it certainly puts King Abdullah, who is right now having dinner with Secretary Blinken, that's on the schedule, at least unless that's changed. Yeah. So he's got a third of his population is Palestinian in refugee camps forever in Jordan. So, uh, and so every Arab leader is feeling vulnerable by what's happening. And until they can get humanitarian aid into Gaza, the president's mission will not be successful. That's why he's going. That's why they need this lull in the fighting, in the ground invasion, to get the aid in. How much does the president's relationship with Netanyahu come into play here? And I think about the very public support Joe Biden has given for Israel at every phase of this conflict so far, but also what we know are the private assurances to be cautious and to protect civilians and public assurances on that. And talk to me a little bit about the balance of that messaging and what the president kind of needs to get out of this moment and his meetings with the Israeli prime minister. Well, the, the tensions between them go back many years when Joe Biden was first vice president, goes to Israel, and the settlements are expanded as he's arriving. Right. And he felt a major snub. A major snub. But they have really managed to navigate this. And Netanyahu was insulted that he did not get a meeting at the White House, but they did meet in New York, and they did, ver- they did a lot of good work mm-hmm. together. And they had a mutual goal with the Saudis to work on normalization in January, February, early next year, if they could if a lot of obstacles could be over, overcome on all sides. So they've been working together. And I can't tell you the extent that the Israeli people were overwhelmed by what Joe Biden said in the immediate aftermath of the attack mm-hmm. against the people in Israel. The Hamas attack and the visceral response of Joe Biden and then Secretary Blinken when he arrived on Thursday you know, saying strongly personal responses, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. No American president has ever said the things about Israel that this president did when this happened on the 7th and in the days afterwards. And no secretary of state has ever embraced Israel. And it has been profoundly people were moved to tears. Members of, of Netanyahu's ministry and key advisors were acknowledged that they were crying as a result. Mm-hmm. So he's gained a lot of leverage there. And that's why I think they believe that, I know they believe that they can come now and say, you have to make sure you limit the casualties. This is going to be a grinding weeks or months of war mm-hmm. and get that aid in and get it in now. He'll have a lot of leverage and he will have to use all of it and his experience in the foreign policy arena on this trip. I can't imagine a more delicate moment exactly. here. All right, Andrew Mitchell, thank you for that reporting and that perspective, which I think is so valuable. Um, and as the president is preparing to leave on this trip, his administration is sending even more military personnel and equipment into the region. According to a defense official, the Pentagon put about 2,000 U.S. trips on to pair, excuse me, prepare to deploy orders for possible support to Israel. This comes as the Pentagon has already deployed two carrier strike groups to the Middle East region. Joining me now is our Pentagon correspondent, Courtney Cuby. So, Courtney, you've got some reporting about these troop movements. What more do we know? Yeah, so Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has ordered that about 2,000, a little more than 2,000 actually, troops be put on prepare-to-deploy orders. And what essentially this means is— 
there were there are certain capabilities that the U.S. is considering they may need to send forward to the region around Israel in the coming days and weeks. And he wants those troops to be ready to go to be on a short leash. Some of them will be on as short as a 24 hour leash, meaning that once they get the call that they have to deploy, they're going to have to be at an airfield ready to go within 24 hours. Now, all that is to say no one has gotten any actual orders to move to the region and when I say the region, I'm saying it very specifically because the U.S. officials and defense officials who are speaking to about this are saying that they would move to the area around Israel, but not necessarily that they would go into Israel, at least at this point. This whole situation is moving so quickly and these decisions are moving so quickly that I don't think it's outside the realm of possible that we may see some U.S. troops in some sort of a support role in Israel ultimately, whether that be for medical, explosives, uh, ordnance detection, those kinds of technicians, maybe in additional intelligence support, something like that. But again, Garrett, at this point, no orders have been cut. No U.S. troops are moving forward. There are just some who are being put on a shorter timeline to be ready in case they do have to deploy. All right, Courtney Kuby, I know you will stay on top of it. Thank you for that reporting. And still to come, disorder in the House. What another embarrassing and chaotic day on the House floor means for the future of the Republican conference. What it says about the state of U.S. politics and what we just learned about when the next vote might be happening. You're watching Meet the Press now. And welcome back. We continue to keep an eye on Capitol Hill, where the House is still in recess after Jim Jordan failed to win the speakership on the first ballot. The source tells our team on the Hill that the second round of balloting could happen in about an hour as Jordan looks to try to increase his level of support. Joining me now on our onset panel, Eugene Scott, senior politics reporter at Axios, Michael LaRosa, former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, and Danielle Pletka, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's also an NBC News contributor. Um, Eugene, let's take a step back and just talk about how we got here. I mean, for somebody who landed on Mar from Mars right now and is wondering what happened over the last two weeks mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill, how would you summarize this bizarre moment that we found ourselves in? Well, the truth is we find ourselves in the same moment that we were in, or a similar moment, should I say, to where we were in January. It's Republicans, quite frankly, having a really difficult time figuring out who they want to be second in line to the presidency. There's so much confusion within the GOP in terms of ideology, or at best, should we say, diversity in terms of where things should go, mm -hmm. that these types of debates and confusion are inevitable. And this is what will probably continue to happen for a while, considering where the GOP has moved in the past few years. Danielle, is this a debate about ideology or a debate about rules? You had 96 percent of Republicans say they wanted Kevin McCarthy to be their speaker, but 96 percent somehow wasn't enough for the most majoritarian institution in our government. Well, I think the problem is that well, what Eugene said is right, that the Republicans can't decide what they want. But the larger problem is that the people who have power in this caucus are not people who thrive on leadership, order, regular order, passing bills. They're basically political trolls. And political trolls love being in the news. They love being at the heart of disorder. They love having their face out there. Those are, and the real question that we should all be asking is, why can't the rest of the majority get its act together to squish those people? Well, the rest of the majority likes to blame this on Democrats. What? Well, that's ridiculous. But <laughs> what I would say, what I would say is that it's a striking difference from 2007 through 2010, I think, when Democrats, their caucus was so diverse, the Blue Dogs had all the power. There was like 60 of them. They mm -hmm. were at the height of their power. 
But Nancy Pelosi was able to really navigate her own caucus, her own caucus that had so many different needs and interests, so ideologically diverse and geographically diverse. Mm -hmm. It is such a striking contrast to see how disorganized and dysfunctional the current Congress is. Do Democrats so have any do Democrats have any regret that they're in, in this moment, you know, they were sort of willing to step aside and watch McCarthy fall to his fate if they may end up with a Speaker Jordan? Or is this, if you're a Democratic member right now, you're I, perfectly happy to watch I this I think when out. Mr. McCarthy decided to pursue impeachment of the president, he lost all goodwill. He he may have even had. I don't know if he had any, mm-hmm. but he lost a lot of goodwill. He was like a day trader. He was just trying to survive by the hour. Eugene, you were ready to jump in. Yeah, two notes. I think Democrats that I've spoken with, their aides at least, are really excited about campaigning uh, against Jim Jordan if he ends up winning, Mm -hmm. especially in those districts that Republicans currently represent that Biden won. I mean, the reality is Jim Jordan is incredibly you know, unpopular within the GOP, much less so outside of uh, the GOP. And, and Democrats think that could work for them yeah. in their favor. But yeah, I was going to say to your, too, I was yeah. going to say to your point earlier, though, when you mentioned about um, what happened in previous House speakerships, I think this is a perfect example of how too often people like to compare the base of the Democratic Party and the base of the GOP in terms of the squad and the Freedom Caucus. And I think right now we're seeing that they really are different in terms of when it comes together. The leadership unity. is different. Danielle, so how do Republicans get their party back then? If, if all these points are true and we're talking about sort of base elements here and unpopular figures, what's the path forward? There's one answer to every single political question we face, whether it's Ukraine or it's the speakership or it's how the House is run or the Senate is run or how the election goes or who wins. And that's leadership. Mm. And the GOP right now has a real bankruptcy of leadership. And I'm a Republican. (laughs) I, I, I watch this and I don't know how to get from here to there. I think it's regrettable, although I think you're exactly right that the Democrats are all salivating at the idea of Jim Jordan. I just want these people to do their job. He's an ad maker, a Democratic ad maker's dream. Uh, I think two things we know are true right now is that they will likely, uh, the government will probably shut down and that uh, the Republicans are going to lose the House. There are 18 Democrats or 18 Republicans and Democrats in Biden held seats, six of whom won by less than two percent, another six of whom one in districts that Biden won by double digits. If I'm any of those 12, I, I'm voting for anybody but Jim Jordan. Well, and it sounds like Pete Aguilar kind of set the stage for this possibility of running against Jim Jordan. I want to play for you guys some of his floor speech here, and we'll react to it on the other side. A vote today to make the architect of a nationwide abortion ban, a vocal election denier, and an insurrection insider to the Speaker of this House would be a terrible message to the country and our allies. Well, Eugene, I, I, I want to go to you on this because I feel like if, you know, if Jim Jordan doesn't end up being the speaker, now Republicans have basically forced a vote for the person that Pete Aguilar has just described. Uh, how difficult of a terrain is it for those Biden district Republicans we were just talking about coming out of this process, you know, regardless of what happens next? It's going to be difficult. I mean, we saw some of them vote for Jordan in the first round, but we can't expect them to do that if a vote comes up 
you know, within the next couple of hours, again, based on what reporting we have at Axios, I think what they're trying to remind other Republicans in their caucus is that the constituencies that different lawmakers represent are very diverse and have very different interests and needs. And there's real concern that Jim Jordan can deliver for them. And if they want to keep the House, Mm -hmm. they might have to come up with some other plan. Danny, I want to I want to pivot now to the foreign affairs piece of the story today, and you are our foreign policy expert here. I was one of the people who kind of thought that the pressure to look like we were governing seriously and we were going to move aid to Israel and maybe Ukraine might force action before we got to this point. That hasn't been the impact now. At what point do you think that sort of looming duty to like be the world's remaining superpower starts to matter in this discussion. I had that same vain hope. (laughs) Forgive us, Uh, right? Right, Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, these people do actually have jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a circus and they're not performers, right? They're they're there to pass bills. The Israelis are going through ammunition at an incredible rate. They are going to end up having to cut back on their Iron Dome missiles to protect the Israeli homeland if we do not move quickly in order to, uh, in order to appropriate emergency aid for Israel. The House, you know, something, look, Israel isn't the most important thing in the world to every American, but I look at the House of Representatives and ask what in heaven's name would make them serious. There are thousands of people dead. This is a terrible ongoing war. And the one thing we don't want to see as Americans is that terrorists get the upper hand Mm -hmm. because we can't get our political act together. Um, Michael, you heard, I think, Andrea, in the last segment, I hope, talking about the extraordinary response to Joe Biden in Israel and the way he's handled this so far. At what point on the international stage do people start to say, Joe Biden's saying the right things, but what is America doing? I mean, it's a good question. I think, and like, I guess, how should the White House handle that well, issue? I, and I think you you asked a really good question of Andrea: is how do you, how does the relationship between Biden and BB uh, ultimately affect what, what's going on here? And I think, and Andrea brought it up: like, there has been tensions in that relationship since 2010. Of course, there was a frosty relationship between the Obama White House and Netanyahu government, but. Joe Biden is a familiar face to the Israelis. He's a familiar face to the Israeli people. He, this friendship goes back 40 years when he met Bibi as a staffer here in DC. Mm-hmm. When he, when Bibi lost his election in 99, Biden did not treat him like it has been. Biden wrote him letters. Bibi stopped by his office. This, this is a relationship goes back decades and it's real. And I think that Biden, uh, has a real opportunity to bring what has been, you know, Bibi, has been antagonistic occasionally, mm-hmm. and there have been people- It's a grown-up friendship. Yeah. It's a friendship between people who don't always like each other. Ex- exactly, but Biden has tremendous loyalty and, su- and support for the state of Israel, mm-hmm. and so I think this is an opportunity to reset almost with Bibi. But he has to deliver, right? And, yeah. and he can't deliver by himself. He needs, he needs Congress, what is actually. The, what do the deliverables look like? I mean, we were talking about this in the last segment, too, the idea that humanitarian aid may be the biggest piece of this puzzle right now. I mean, do you agree with that, that viewpoint that, you know, aid on the humanitarian part's the bigger deliverable, or is it still kind of weapons for Israel, supporting the Iron Dome? Danielle? I want the Israelis to do their best to uh, spare uh, innocent Palestinian lives but no, for me, uh, the priority is the, uh, the eradication of Hamas. And while uh, I look at what the Palestinian people have been put through by Hamas, 
I also look at their Arab neighbors who are so sympathetic to them on social media, but won't let them through the rough border crossing into Egypt, won't let them into Jordan. I look at the money the Saudis and the Qataris have poured in, especially the Qataris, where we have a base, by the way. Mm. And I think to myself... One of the largest Air Force base And I think to myself, the American taxpayer doesn't have to foot that bill. Qatar can foot that bill while we help the Israelis defeat a shared terrorist enemy backed by Iran. I will say, though, the aid is the priority for the progressive base. Well, and, good. and the I'm reality is point, yeah. we've seen progressive lawmakers, we've seen organizations come out expressing their concern about the treatment of Palestinians. And they are, you know, pretty upset, quite frankly, with Biden for taking such a pro-Israel stance. He's been consistent given his own policy convictions and the relationship between the U.S. and Israel over years. But we do know that Biden needed these progressives to win the White House in 2020, and he'll have to win them, need them again in 2024. I found the the progressive response has been a little more muted than I would have expected necessarily. I do think Democrats have been a little bit more united than they have been in, in other instances, and perhaps just because the start of this was so abominable, the Hamas attack. But how long do you think that unity can hold? I think it's going to continue for a while, in part because the Democratic Party strategy, especially in the House right now, is to be as unified as possible. So even though they have these deep convictions that differ with the presidents, they don't want to end up looking like the Republicans at all. And so Mm. we're going to see a level of uh, self-control and discipline in their criticism of the president that, you know, we probably wouldn't have seen in 2018. Maybe they don't want to look like Hamas supporters. I was going to say it'd be very hard for them to to do that because of public sentiment. Mm-hmm. I think they've experienced some rough treatment already for being somewhat critical. I mean, and I would being ex- pro-Hamas. Let's yeah. call it what it is. Uh, I, think it I, don't, I, I, think, I think most Democrats would dispute that characterization. Yeah, of course they would. Well, That's why I'm yeah. here. Yeah, but I was going to say, I think Biden, what he's done is a good job of distinguishing between Palestinians and Hamas. And mm-hmm. I think Democratic lawmakers will probably have to do that to a further degree to prevent being called pro-Hamas by Republicans. I, I want to give you a very brief last word on a specific point, though. During the 2020 campaign, I think a lot of folks talked about Biden's empathy. Is this a moment where that characteristic needs to be put on display on the world stage? Yeah, I think this is where he shines. He did, he did this in Kiev. He did this in Poland. Um, one of the best things about President Biden, one of the things that makes him so relatable is that because he's experienced so much loss in his own life without knowing the person sitting next to him. I think Peter Baker wrote about this today. Without knowing the person next to him, he knows what they're feeling. This will be a moment of a huge test on the world stage, but we have to leave it there. Eugene, Michael, Danielle, thank you all for your expertise on these topics. And thank you all for being with us this hour. I'll be back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC's News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.